0: The Edmonds Act made it much easier for people to punish and incarcerate people they suspected of practicing plural marriage. It also stripped them of their voting rights, so Latter-day Saint men and women.
1: Welcome to The Saints Podcast. I'm Ben Godfrey
2: and I'm Shaylin Back. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, we're going to be discussing chapter 32, Stand Up and Take the Pelting.
1: And we're joined today by a good friend, Kate Holbrook, who is a historian and women's history specialist in the church history department. Welcome, Kate.
0: Thanks, Ben. Shaylin, it's good to be here.
1: We are excited to have you here, and maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about the project that you're working on and how it sort of applies to the chapter we're talking about today.
0: For the past couple of years, we've been researching a narrative history of the Young Women Organization, which we hope will be out in a couple more years.
1: And so what will that be like? What are you looking forward to for people to learn about the founding of the Young Women's Organization?
0: Well, I think for a lot of people, if they know anything about the history of the Young Women's Organization, the founding might be the only thing they've heard of. And part of the reason it's taken us a few years of research to get into this is nobody knows this history. So when people ask what's new in the history... Almost all of it (laughs) will be new to people and really interesting to see how men and women really collaborated in the young men's and young women's organizations over much of the 20th century. That's very exciting. I can't wait to read it.
1: Well, we'll be excited to see that book in a couple of years and invite our listeners to watch for that as well. In today's chapter, we do have some pretty exciting things going on in 1880. What's so exciting about 1880? What's happening here in the church?
0: It's good and bad. On the bad end, things are really heating up with anti-polygamy fervor in Washington, D.C. The 1880s are the roughest time for people who were practicing plural marriage, and you see that get going in 1880. But then some really important landmark events take place in the organization of the church, including we get general presidents called and sustained over our Young Women Primary and Relief Society organizations.
2: What's exciting about 1880, it's the church's 50th anniversary, and so the saints are having this celebration. Can you tell us more about this jubilee?
0: Yeah, I imagine they went through so much in 50 years. It's sort of astonishing that it had only been 50 years, and now here they were established and things were going really well in Utah. One of the major ways they celebrated the Jubilee was to forgive debts in accord with the Old Testament tradition of forgiving debts as a Jubilee celebration. So John Taylor, who was leading the church at the time, he asked regular members who owned banks and other businesses if they could forgive some of the debts of some of the people who owed them money. The church forgave the debts of people who'd participated in the perpetual emigration fund, those who weren't able to pay that money back. And then the Relief Society had been carefully saving grain for decades. And kept that for a time of emergency, which meant they didn't share it. But for the Jubilee, they shared, they gave some of this stored wheat to different bishops to give to the hungry people in their wards. So it was a really beautiful time of grace. That's really special. And what an amazing blessing in the lives of these people
2: and such incredible timing. I love that story.
0: Yeah,
1: There's another chapter in Saints. We're going to meet an individual who's asked to contribute to the temple. And because of forgiveness of debt, he feels like he's able to do that. So it's really kind of a, an amazing story that we'll catch up with again in another chapter. But here in chapter 32, we have the forming of general presidencies. Is this the first time this has happened? Can you tell us what's happened to get us to the point of calling these new presidencies?
0: Yeah, it's interesting because Eliza R. Snow has been functioning as though she were the Relief Society general president for about 12 years and informally even longer than that. But she hasn't had that title. And John Taylor goes to a meeting, and he sustains a woman named Louis Felt to be the general president of all of the primaries. And this was Eliza Arsenault's idea, by the way. <laughs> so the first general president we have of one of these women-led organizations is Louis Felt of primary And then after they sustain her, John Taylor starts reminiscing, talking about the founding of Relief Society in Nauvoo back in 1842, because he'd been at that founding meeting. And he talks about the power that Joseph Smith gave to women and saw women being free to exercise to build the kingdom through the Relief Society organization. So he talks about that. And then another woman says, well, shouldn't Eliza R. Snow be the Relief Society General President? And he agrees. And so they sustain her and she chooses counselors. And one other interesting thing about this is early on, they envisioned that calling to be a lifelong calling, just like the president of the church served in that capacity until he died. And Emma Smith, who was technically our first Relief Society General President, had only died less than a year before this meeting. So that might be part of why we didn't have Eliza R. Snow I was going to
1: ask you that. If there's some connection there to Emma's recent passing and then calling a new general president, was that some sort of deference or acknowledgement somehow of Emma and her early role in Relief Society?
0: I absolutely think it was, that they saw that as a lifelong calling. And since she wasn't participating, it complicated things a little bit. But now with her passing, they could still honor her and call Eliza R. Snow officially as the general president.
2: And in a previous chapter, if I'm remembering correctly, Brigham Young calls Eliza Snow to oversee the Relief Society basically as a missionary assignment is that true? It kind of seemed like he said, I have another assignment for her. And she said, okay, I'll do it. And she's in charge of teaching
0: Relief Society in kind all of these wars. Of, yeah, that was in 1868. In the Nauvoo Relief Society, she had been the main secretary. And most of the minutes we have from that Relief Society are written in her handwriting. And so in 1868, when Brigham Young asked her to help more formally, there had been relief societies here and there, but this was a formal, throughout the church, reorganized relief society effort, then she took that Nauvoo Relief Society minute book, and she's the one that had kept it safe coming all the way across the plains, and she took it with her all over Utah territory and into other areas and would show the book to the women in the brand-new Relief Society and show them how the book was started and how it was kept, and then she would tell them what was in there, and that's the pattern they used for establishing their new Relief Societies. And in part, she did that because Joseph Smith had told her when she was one of those starting Relief Society in 1842. She had written up bylaws, which is what you do when you start a new club, and handed them to him, and he said, instead of these, your minute book that will function as your bylaws. And so that's what she was doing. She was taking the bylaws, which was the minute book from Relief Society to Relief Society. And the thing that's more exciting about the minute book than actual bylaws is it was full of revelation. It was full of speeches by Joseph Smith and the women themselves that really captured the spirit of Relief Society more than a legal document ever could have.
1: And I have to pause here and give a little plug, Kate. So there's a wonderful book called The First 50 Years of Relief Society. Kate is one of the authors of that book, along with Matt Groh, Carol Cornwall, Madsen and Jill Mulvay-Durr. If you are in your gospel library and you go to the church history section, you will see first 50 years of Relief Society. The entire minute book is there, fully transcribed by three different levels of verification to make sure we got it just right. And you can also go on to churchhistorianspress.org where you can see the entire Nauvoo minute book as well as other documents relating to these first 50 years of Relief Society.
0: And you can read about the founding of primary, the founding of young women, and this meeting we're talking about right now, where the general presidencies were established. So what I think is
2: fascinating about this meeting, so it's a Relief Society meeting. And so Eliza Snow, it's her idea to have a general primary president. And then in that same meeting, just as President Taylor's reminiscing, like you said, about Relief Society... Another woman, Mary Isabella Horn, proposes that Eliza Snow is nominated for Relief Society presidency, and it happens right then, correct? John Taylor asks for a sustaining vote as he nominates her, and I just think this is so neat. Like, I think it would be a very powerful meeting for her to assume this responsibility in an informal way. Yeah. It's then made formal.
0: Yeah. It was so fast. Mm-hmm. And then she says, well, we think Elmina Taylor should be the general president of the Young Women Organization. And it was at a separate meeting, but the same series of meetings. And so then they make her the general president of Young Women.
1: Can you tell us a little bit about the relationship between these three organizations, Relief Society, Young Women, and I forget exactly what they're called at this point, Young Women Mutual Improvement Association or something?
0: Young Ladies. Young Ladies, okay.
1: And then the primary, how are they organized in relation to each
0: other? So, the Young Ladies Association started in 1870, and the timing was no accident. It was right after the railroad reached Utah, and Brigham Young was concerned about how many outside influences there would be coming into the community. And so, they organized the Young Women's Organization at his request as part of a larger retrenchment effort, which meant let's spend a little less time thinking about the way we dress, a little less energy on our meals. Let's focus more on spiritual development, intellectual development, the work we can do, both spiritual work and physical work, but not housework, apparently. (laughs) (laughs) And so what we now call the Young Women's Organization, it started as the Junior Retrenchment Society for younger women, and this included women in their 20s and sometimes in their 30s. And some of the people in this Junior Retrenchment Association were also married. So it's a little different than what we think of when we imagine young women today.
1: So what else can we learn about these organizations at this time?
0: So Primary was new. It was only about two years old. Aurelia Rogers had had the idea to found Primary in Farmington, Utah. And when there was a stake relief society... Meetings were really exciting. There was a stake relief society meeting up near her, and the relief society leaders from Utah traveled to attend this meeting. And after the meeting, she invited them over to her home and she explained to them, I really think we need an organization for young children. And she initially thought young boys, she was so worried. Who were these young girls going to marry when they grew up? Because the boys were too rowdy, and they were running around on the streets all the time. And then she said, no, it should also be for young girls. And so she shared this idea. And then Eliza Arsnow took the idea to John Taylor, who was head of the church then, and it got going. So there's a quote from the book, Belinda Pratt,
2: who's a Stake Relief Society president. She writes in her journal. She says, what an age we are living in. How great the responsibilities of the sisters of the church. What a work they are accomplishing. And I just think that's an incredible summary of these series of meetings where we get this organization of the General Relief Society, Young Women, and Primary Presidencies. And I just wanted to ask you, Kate, what do you think the legacy has been from this original organization?
0: Well, one of the important things that meeting did was it gave titles and recognition to women for work they were already doing. And so I think that's part of why Belinda Pratt said what she did was This work has already been going on, and it's really important, but to have names and titles associated with it helps it integrate more into the priesthood organization of the general church. It helps us to be more tied in with the general church, and that's really important for both the general church and the women-led organizations to be working together.
1: As a historian and knowing about outside of the church influences in the United States and elsewhere— Were these kinds of organizations sort of typical of what was happening for women at this time? Was this new and different than maybe what was happening in the broader culture?
0: There were organizations for young people, but the Young Women Organization does seem to me to be a little bit exceptional. And the organization of the primary, too. Churches were taking care of their youth and they were taking care of their children, but the way Latter-day Saints went about it with their formal programs— that they figured out how to run and then established all over the place. It was just a little more formal and more focused. And the high-ranking positions of the general presidents also set us apart a little bit from what was going on.
1: One of the things I find really fascinating about this, I've heard this term, I don't know who exactly said it first, but... The idea is information precedes inspiration. You might have heard somebody say that before. Yeah. And the thing I love about what we're learning here in Saints is the information about we need to do something about helping our kids' religious education, both as young people and as children. And we need to do something to better organize the women. Like these ideas, it feels like the information is coming up to the leaders of the church, which then can seek inspiration and then implement these programs, and it it feels like, to paraphrase, revelation is raining down on everyone.
0: Yeah. I think 1880 did really feel like a revelatory year
2: for members of the church. With a lot of new organization. So something that surprised me from the book that I didn't realize is that Brigham Young died three years previous to this, And there hadn't been a first presidency since he died. And this happened after Joseph Smith died, too. It was years before the presidency was organized again. So can you tell us a little bit about this reorganization of the first presidency?
0: Yeah, a little after this meeting, well, some months after this meeting where we had the general presidents of the women-led organizations, John Taylor, who's been acting as president in his capacity as president of the Quorum of the Twelve, is finally made official president of the church. And then at the October General Conference, they all sustain him as president of the church. Everybody recognized his authority, but still it must have felt good after three years <laughs> to finally have it be a little more official.
1: And in this same conference, the assembly votes to also accept the Pearl of Great as scripture and adds to our canon, a document that had been prepared and printed and circulated for many, many years, but it's now officially part of our canon.
0: And part of what's interesting about that to me is that people voted on it. It wasn't something that the first presidency or the presidency of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles got together and said, we really should make this an official part of the canon. Let's do it. They said, we feel that it's pleasing to God to make this an official part of our canon. Let's bring it up for a vote. And everybody voted in support of it.
1: It is really fascinating.
2: Kate, also in this chapter, we read about an early convert to the church in Mexico. Can you tell us more about this woman?
0: Oh, this is a fascinating woman. Her name is Desideria Quintanar de Llanes. Excuse my accent, you Spanish speakers. But she had a dream. She lived in rural Mexico, about 75 miles outside of Mexico City, and she had a dream about a pamphlet that she needed to read, and it would help her be closer to God. And she was elderly, and she knew from this dream that She would find this pamphlet in Mexico City. So she asked her son to travel to Mexico City. And he goes there, and there are thousands of people everywhere. But after a little while, he meets this man who had an English copy of the pamphlet. And he said they were just finishing the printing on the Spanish version of the pamphlet. And the gospel had been taught in Mexico for just a little bit. It was the the first few years. So he introduced the son to some missionaries and he gave him some more material. And then he was able to give him this information without the actual pamphlet and send him back to his mother. And so the son was excited. He had all of this wonderful news. And then eventually they receive the reading material. And She wants to be baptized and has to wait a bit until missionaries can travel out to her and then they baptize her finally.
2: And such an incredible part of that story is that the title of the pamphlet, A Voice of Warning, is exactly the title that she dreams about. And so she's able to know that is the pamphlet. That is what I've been waiting for. This is the one. I so
1: wish I could have been there that day when the missionary, James Stewart, meets Jose, her son, and he says, I hear you're publishing a book called... A voice of warning. <laughs> and he's like, um, it's not off the press.
0: Right. It's not you know, right. How do
1: you know about this? And he's like, well, my mom had a vision. Yeah. And I love that. As you're going to see throughout the chapters, we meet so many people like this, you know, whether it was Sidney Rigdon's congregation early in volume one or the United Brethren in England or the Maori saints or the Hawaiian saints, these people. The, the Yeah, the Shoshones. So They're prepared and they've even had spiritual manifestations telling them it's coming. And here she is, you know, and she knows, and then it's exactly what she was looking for. It's just, it's a miracle.
0: In this stage, it's like the revelation precedes the information. You have the dream, you have these images, and then when the information comes with the missionary Book of Mormon translation, all of that, then the pieces are all put together.
1: It is an amazing story. There's another part of this chapter that's a little bit difficult. Uh, Well, not a little bit. It's a lot difficult. Congress has passed the Edmonds Act. Tell us what the Edmonds Act did to members of the church, regardless of whether they were in plural marriage or not.
0: The Edmonds Act made it much easier for people to punish and incarcerate people they suspected of practicing plural marriage. It also stripped them of their voting rights, so Latter-day Saint men and women. Being the first women in the country to exercise the right to vote and having waged a big suffrage campaign to earn that right, it was devastating to them to have their right to vote taken away. We also lost representation in Congress. George Q. Cannon was our territorial representative to Congress. And he also, because he practiced plural marriage, was no longer able to have that office. So politically, and as far as everyday life went, this was devastating. And then as people became more enthusiastic about tracking down and incarcerating polygamists, the leaders of the church, including George Q. Cannon and John Taylor, spent time in jail and spent time just hiding out. And so running the church became much more difficult because they were often in hiding. It makes that 1880 period where the female general leaders were sustained and then the sustaining of the first presidency seem a little extra important because at least those things were put firmly in place and everybody knew about them before this time of hiding and retribution.
1: It's hard when you think about it today, In today's political climate, if we think about a group of people being disenfranchised, thrown off of juries, not able to hold political office, that seems like, well, that just couldn't happen. But it's because of presentism. Like, I have a hard time because I'm thinking of them in my world. But in their world, it happened. Mm -hmm. This isn't a story. This is history. This really happened. People in America lost the right to vote.
0: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And this is all part of our history, which makes me remember every election cycle when the first presidency sends out the letter and it says, please go vote. The church is neutral. We don't support political parties, but please go vote. We have a long history with this, and it's an important thing we need to do. Yeah.
2: So this chapter contains so much discouragement for women and then so much encouragement at the same time with the organization of these general auxiliary presidencies. So it's kind of an interesting time for the saints.
0: Yeah.
1: One of our main characters in this chapter is George Q. Cannon. He has some interesting experiences. What are your thoughts about George in this chapter?
0: Well, the chapter begins and ends with him. And it begins with him because he's the representative of Utah Territory in Congress. And there's a little mention of people who know him and his wife, Elizabeth, who say, well, they don't match the stereotypes we've heard about people who practice plural marriage. They're cultured and refined and intelligent and pleasant. And if that's what plural marriage creates, maybe it's not as bad as we thought.
1: And then we go to the end of the chapter <laughs> and he's kicked out of Congress, yeah. regardless of if he's a really nice guy, right?
0: I mean, really, that's what yeah, happened. But they didn't really believe it at some level, right? Yeah, or else right. they wouldn't have kept working so hard, so hard to try to eradicate plural marriage. But George Q. Cannon is a really interesting man because he was an apostle and he was overseeing the British mission. He put a lot of reforms into the mission. He changed the way they printed their materials there and had them done by Latter-day Saints. And just all of the systems they had in place, he improved them. And then he returned to Utah and he started what became Deseret Book Company and what became the Deseret News. We've talked about other organizations organizations. We haven't talked about Sunday school, and he was the first what we now call Sunday school president for the church. So he was really always thinking about the written word and teaching new generations.
1: And his sister-in-law was the first seated female senator in U.S. history
0: S- state senator
1: state senator yes. sorry yes yeah, yeah. Wow. state senator yes yeah. she, his sister-in-law who happened to run against her husband that cycle
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I'm descended from the husband oh are you <laughs> yeah. from
1: Ag- Angus Cannon from Angus
0: M. Cannon that's fantastic
1: yeah. well Kate we so much appreciate you joining us today this has been a fun conversation to learn about the history of the founding of these organizations and these general presidencies thank you so much for being with us
0: thank you so much for having me
2: And as we say goodbye to our listeners, I just have to plug one more story. If you haven't read the chapter, you have to go read about Anna Widtsoe and her conversion story. And it has to deal with her social class and kind of the struggle that she had with learning more about the church and eventually converting, but go read it. It's one of my favorite stories in Saints. And as always, you can explore more of the topics that we've talked about. They're available online at saints.ldschurch.org, where you can read chapters and follow right along.
1: You can also email us at saintspodcast at churchofjesuschrist.org. We look forward to your feedback and questions. I'm Ben Godfrey.
2: And I'm Shaylin Back. Thanks so much for listening.